Hello and welcome to the Matt Belair podcast. As an explorer of the mind and world, author and coach, I have spent a lifetime learning how to push my limits and achieve my highest potential. My mission is to bring you the most inspiring, conscious, and empowering teachers, leaders, and thinkers on the planet. To bring you stories, lessons, and messages that will help you master your mind, body, and spirit. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi there, you fantastic human being and extraordinary soul. Welcome to another episode. Thank you so much for joining me. We have the absolutely brilliant Dean Radin for you today. This interview is a year in the works. I've been familiar with his tremendous work for a long time, and I reached out and he was really busy. Um, But a year later, I have him on the show to talk about his latest book, which is entitled Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the universe. Um, So Dean Radin has been trying to bring the science to things like remote viewing, um, psychic powers, intuition, all the things that are kind of not measurable. Um, He's absolutely brilliant. This episode is amazing. I know you're going to love it. We go and we talk about um, what is consciousness, the history of magic, Eastern and Western mystic traditions, uh, two scientific worldviews, material materialism versus consciousness-based, uh, precognition, remote viewing, and psychic phenomenon, practicing uh, practices of magic, uh, divination, uh, theurgy, force of will, accessing deep mind, samadhi dropping into deep mind into awareness, gnosis, um, levitating, super robots, real-life Merlins, uh, so much real life superhumans. This is a, an incredible episode, so I know you're going to love it. Um, if you like it, please share. If you do enjoy this podcast and you get some insights and value, please do take an action. And the best and most important action you can take is do one act of kindness, even better, three actual actions of kindness. Uh, David Lone Bear, Senapasting native elder of the Mi'kmaq Nation, who I am currently studying with, who is a mathematician, engineer, world record for putting unmanned balloons into space by himself, says that three acts of kindness is a mathematical formula because there's some there's an electromagnetic uh, experience when an actual action is taken. So you can take that for what it's worth. And the worst case scenario, you do something kind. So do that. That's the best thing that you can do to support the episode um, and the podcast. The other thing that you can do is you can share this episode. That would be amazing. And you can support on Patreon if you like this. Please take an action and go to patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair. And even if you chip in a buck, it goes a super long way. So thank you so much to all my patrons now. I want to thank Gunthu and Ruri Nakanishi. I hope I pronounced that right, but I got two, and that's amazing. I was away for the weekend, so I was super grateful for that because it helps me do this full-time, and, and I can't wait for the day I get an assistant because this is uh, – I'm working really hard, and it is epic. And, man, there's just so many amazing people to talk to and share their wisdom and have deep conversations with and just share their work like Dean. So um, so thank you guys who have been supporting me on Patreon. Thank you for the shares. You know, Check me out on social media and all that kind of stuff. I want to thank my sponsor, Sync Tuition, which is 3D sound tracks that are binaural beat, gamma wave, brainwave entrainment. You can get three free tracks if you go to bit.ly forward slash gamma waves. And also shout out to 
this episode's sponsor, which is Procabulary by Mark England. It basically is like the premium course on understanding the power of word. You can upgrade your language for the rest of your life. And if you go to procabulary.org and use word magic as the checkout, you will get a um, $100 discount. So just check out Word Magic and uh, you'll get a $100 discount for that incredible course. So definitely check that out. I took it and it's extraordinary. It's it's an absolutely brilliant language course. So um, it's I don't know if I, I can't remember if I did it Word Magic with a C or a K. So try both if, if one doesn't work. Um, also check out Zen Athlete. It could be Zen Life, Zen Business, Zen Music. It doesn't matter. The only reason why I did Athlete is because I want to teach this to kids. And basically what it teaches you to do is how to define a clear goal from your heart, how to get there quickly, easily, and efficiently by programming your mind and body for success, how to overcome any hurdle, and how to do that from a state of completion and fulfillment from where you are now. So check out zenathlete.com. And if you want to dive deeper and you want to do a one-on-one coaching session, I'm doing 90-minute sessions, which are breakthrough sessions, going through any limiting belief, helping you find your purpose, um, creating a life plan, all that kind of stuff. We can get you on track quickly and easily. So check that out at mattbelair.com forward slash coaching, as well as deeper mentorship coaching as well. So if you are really serious about leveling up, um, you know, understanding more about consciousness, uh, finding your own fulfillment, uncovering your own values and living a life that you want to live and you want to break through any kind of limiting beliefs or programs or anything like that, you might want to check that out as well. So go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching as well. If you're in peak performance, high performance, you know, athletes, um, CEOs, all that kind of stuff too. So I kind of do the whole gauntlet from what I would call an average Joe, which is me, um, you know, leveling up step by step and people who are super achievers who want that extra edge because it's all comes down to mental game, consciousness and personal development, but doing it most importantly from a state of completion and fulfillment from where you are now. So it's a bit of a balancing act. And when you get really clear on that, um, you move through life differently, you navigate it differently and you feel um, good about it. And that's the whole point because it, it is challenging here on planet earth. Um, so, oh yeah. And I want to thank the number one sponsor of course, which is David Lone Bear Pass. Go to lonebearsarts.com. And if you send him an email, you can uh, get a 5% discount on handmade vibrational native jewelry that actually makes a signal. It's electromagnetic. Um, so check out his pendants that are custom made one at a time. I actually recently filmed him doing that. It's an amazing process. Um, so just let him know Matt sent you and, uh, yeah, he does vibrational pendants that actually create a magnetic field. So he's absolutely extraordinary. Check him out because, uh, you know, I don't know. He's just, he's just ridiculous. I, I spent the weekend with them just doing more teachings from the ancient copper scrolls and it's, you know, it's mind blowing. So check out his work and please support him if you like the podcast. So that is it. I'm going to stop yammering. And before we get in, let's just come into coherence with three deep breaths, coming to peace and gratitude for where you are now. So stop whatever you're doing, taking in a deep breath in through your nose Hold that breath and just let it out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day. Just letting all that go. Taking another deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and just let it out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day. Just feeling gratitude and peace and contentment now. Taking one more deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and just let it out slowly with all the cares and all the worries.
And now just make that internal commitment to go about the rest of your day with peace, with ease, with confidence, with contentment, with allowing, with surrendering, and just noticing all the beauty that's around you, no matter what you're going through. So thank you so much. I know you're going to enjoy this incredible episode with Dean Raiden. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and Associated Distinguished Professor of Integral and Transpersonal Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned an MS in Electrical Engineering and a PhD in Psychology from the University of Illinois. Before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001, he held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He is author or co-author of hundreds of technical and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, and four popular books, The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic. Welcome to the show, Dean Radin. Thank you very much. Ah, thanks for coming on. I've uh, been a fan of your work and, and excited to chat with you. You're up to some extraordinary things. Um, you've done some extraordinary work. And I guess for those who are not familiar with you, I was wondering if you want to give them a little bit of background and then we can dive in wherever you want to start. Well, my original career was uh, intended to be a concert violinist. So from age five to about 25, I was primarily playing the violin hours a day. And about the last 10 years of that, I was doing professional gigs of various types. Uh, but sometime in, in college, I realized that it was possible to make a living doing something other than music. And so I asked around to, uh, to my friends and my, uh, my, my family's friends, what would you do if you wanted to continue music as a, as a hobby and not have to actually spend your career doing it? And of the various kinds of things that people suggested, engineering was one of the first. So I was interested in, in science and engineering as well, and I ended up getting two degrees in electrical engineering. And then I still don't know what I wanted to do. So I took a, a vocational inventory test in graduate school, which matches your personality against different kinds of professions. And, and it would, the idea of that was that if you if your personality matches somebody who's happy in their profession, you're pretty likely going to be happy in this other profession too. So I took that test, and what it suggested was that there were three professions that I would be happy in. The first one was policemen. I can sort of understand why. I mean, I'm interested in social justice and that social order and that sort of thing. Uh, the second was priest. Well, I'm not a very religious person, so that, that wasn't going to work. But I understood that as well, because that is oftentimes about social justice as well. And the third was social scientist, or a scientist involved in, in studying human behavior. And so that made a lot of sense to me. So I, after I got my master's in electrical engineering, I wanted to get a PhD in psychology. And so I have a mixture of various kinds of artistic and scientific background, none of which had anything to do with psychic phenomena. And yet, uh, as I speak now, I spent the, the majority of my professional career doing science on psychic phenomena. 
So what's the connection? The connection is that uh, when I was young, I, I read a lot of fairy tales and science fiction and was always curious about these experiences that people talk about. And when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I ran across a book that described how science can be used to study things like telepathy. And I found that just fascinating because now the stories that I had read about as a child, I saw that there was a way to test if these were simply fantasy or whether it was actually true. And I never forgot that. So I started doing little experiments by myself and then I continued doing that through graduate school, actually college and graduate school, and even when I started working at Bell Labs. Uh, and I was getting interesting results. And that just kept pushing my curiosity. And eventually I managed to gain full-time employment to do this kind of research. And that's what I've been doing now for over 40 years. That's amazing. Yeah, that you know, it's interesting that um, you have the very strong science background, which is what we need, because a lot of the people studying, let's say, consciousness and spirituality now, they don't have that strong science background. So you've written some incredible books, and you have the new one out now. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's in there, what some of the research and science that you've discovered? I think I'll put it into context. So the four books that I've, four, the four popular books that I've written now, the first one is called The Conscious Universe, it was describing how science can test psychic phenomena. And th this, in order to be able to talk about that, you need to talk about what science is, how experiments work, what counts as evidence in science, uh, and on and on and on, all kinds of things about that. So that's what that book is about, basically. The second book I wrote because uh, one of the critiques that you often hear about psychic phenomena is from physicists who say that ESP is impossible. Well, then you say, well, why is it impossible? Because it violates the laws of physics. So the, the, the second book called Entangled Minds was to address that question and to see whether or not physics as we know it today actually makes ESP impossible or not. And it's a very clear answer. It is not impossible. It would have been impossible in the 17th century, but not today. So. That, that was that book. It was addressing the physics question. The third book was to begin to answer the next question that often comes up, which is, well, then how does this work? How could it possibly work? So I decided to do a, an analysis of the Eastern esoteric traditions because the esoteric traditions are, go all the way back to shamanism. So they're at least 10,000 years old, maybe longer. And you, there, there's a continuous strain of uh, traditions uh, that are shaped by culture and history that go all throughout the East and all throughout the West. So the first book is about the Eastern esoteric tradition, primarily in the form of yoga and meditation. That book was super normal. It's about the cities from yoga. And now my more, most recent book, which, which came out in April 2018, is on the Western esoteric traditions. And the Western esoteric traditions, the psychic phenomena are cast in terms of magic, esoteric magic, because the both Eastern and Western esoteric traditions are saturated with practices. And the practices are what we would today call magic. They were even called magic back then. Magic had a different connotation then. Magic meant 
wisdom, essentially, a kind of power or wisdom, but it was a practice. Well, when the church came along and then later science came along, these traditions were suppressed. And, and so in today's secular scientific way of thinking, magic is an ancient superstition and clearly none of it is, is real. That's what academics are taught. Uh, the problem with that is that when you actually look at what the underlying concepts of religion are based on, it's based on the notion that consciousness is fundamental in some way. This is true both in the Eastern and Western esoteric traditions. So in the Western sense, we're talking about uh, long after shamanism, we have Pythagoras, Plato, Neoplatonism, Hermeticism, Gnosticism, and uh, of course, leading to practices like alchemy, astrology, herbalism, more recent times, the Rosicrucians, and the Freemasons were among the first groups to collect all of these ancient esoteric ideas. Uh, the Freemasons in particular uh, were interesting because this is the first time that an organization uh, was formed where it initially only men could join, but now men or women can join and learn about the esoteric traditions as part of a curriculum because prior to that, it was always an oral tradition or only one teacher and one student. So then we have theosophy, new, new thought, mind science, Christian science, and now the, the whole genre of affirmations and law of attraction, looks like the secret. It's all part of this completely uh, connected legacy that goes back as far as history goes. And all throughout it, you get the same idea again and again. Consciousness is fundamental in some way. Well, as a scientist, you're not taught that at all. You're, ta you're taught within a, a worldview that's called materialism. Uh, materialism in one sentence basically says that uh, everything is made out of matter, including mind. Whereas the opposite, the esoteric traditions are the opposite of that. It says everything is made out of mind, including matter. So a philosopher would call that idealism. So these are the two, two ways of perceiving the world, materialism and idealism. I decided uh, that because it is so difficult within the materialistic scientific worldview to explain in a satisfactory way why magic and psychic phenomena, which are basically the same thing, why is it so difficult to explain as materialistic uh, uh, phenomenon maybe we should look at a different worldview, which is namely the esoteric worldview. So we're shifting from a materialistic frame to an idealistic frame and seeing whether these kinds of phenomena are easier to understand. And it turns out, of course, that they're very easy to understand because they're, they're built from, that, from idealism, essentially. So I'm using philosophical terms here and ideas about worldviews and so on. And I don't, that is essentially what, what my book, Real Magic, is about. But it, I don't use that in the title, and I don't start with that because it would it, it, only four, four or five people would ever read the book. You do, you do not want to put the word philosophy in the title of a book, and you don't want to start talking about it early on either. So a few academics will be interested, but nobody else will. So instead, I'm talking about uh, an assumption of Magic is an ancient practice, mostly superstition. Clearly nobody in the right mind would believe in it today, who goes through a standard Western education. 
and it basically has gone away. Well, it turns out that none of that is true. Magic never went away. There are plenty of academics who spend their careers studying magic, and there is science that can be brought to bear on the topic. So the book is written as a way to, as an introduction actually, as to why we actually know now that some of these ancient practices were very likely to be real. And then I talk about some of the consequences of that, both for science and for daily practice. That all sounds very fascinating to me. Can you go into some of like the core fundamentals of, of the research and how we would apply this stuff? Like there's kind of two ways that, I, that I'm curious to go about it because you have one kind of school of thought that's like the people looking to expand their consciousness. I've read plenty of books on uh, psychic powers, uh, intuition, um, all these different things to develop my consciousness. I went to, um, you know, China to train with Shaolin monks because they could do things that were unbelievable, right? This is impossible. So do you, I, I don't know if I want to give it back to you and say like, what do you believe is possible? And then how do we develop that connection? What are these like core principles that we can come back to? And then just, I guess, what is the nature of consciousness? Like how does that begin? And, and how do we connect to this greater picture? I kind of, through a lot, but you can kind of pick and choose and what you think would be the most valuable out of that. Yeah, that, that's a four-hour discussion. <laughs> well, first to... of all, what, what is consciousness? By, by that, I mean awareness. And, and in, in humans, at least, and probably a lot of other things, self-awareness, right? So nobody knows where awareness comes from. The assumption in the neurosciences is that it, the brain somehow generates something that we experience as self-awareness. Uh, there's actually no evidence that that is the case. It's an assumption. And uh, for every, uh, every piece of evidence which is based on neural correlates of consciousness and, uh, and mind, like cognition, these are correlations. It doesn't say which, which direction the arrow of causation goes. In fact, there may be no arrow of causation. It may simply be a correlation. So it is so ingrained in a scientific sense that brain must be giving rise because after all the scientific perspective is everything's made out of matter or energy. And so consciousness must be made out of that as well. But as I said, there is no agreement in science in any discipline or in philosophy on where does consciousness come from. So you, you, switch, you switch hats now and say from an esoteric tradition, the assumption is that, that, that at the base of everything that we know, all there is is consciousness. And it actually even makes sense from a personal perspective because the only thing that we could ever know about anything is because of our awareness. From that perspective, everything else, including what you see out in the world, what we think we know about science, our theories, everything is an inference. It's an inference that we're making based on our awareness. If, if, if no one was aware at all, had no awareness, we wouldn't be having this conversation because we think that it's something about being aware is necessary in order to have to be in the world. So there's no world if no one is aware. So from that first person perspective, uh, idealism begins to make more and more sense. One of the, the critiques about idealism is that it could devolve into solipsism quickly. Solipsism is the notion that the only thing that exists is you. Because as I said, if, you're only, if, 
if your awareness is the only thing that, that, uh, that you can know, then even other people become an inference. I can't tell if you're conscious or not. Looks like you are, but maybe you're a fancy program machine that it's like uh, talking to Alexa or something. You know, it, we, we can't tell. And this is, of course, a, a long-term problem. But we can infer, at least, that other people seem to have the same experiences that we do, in which case consciousness seems to be shared by all kinds of things, not just people, animals, maybe even inanimate objects might have some form of consciousness. So if that is the case, uh, and the esoteric traditions say that consciousness is not human-centric, it's simply part of the fabric of reality. You imagine reality is sort of a tapestry. It's clearly made up of material stuff, and energy is a real thing. We're not saying these are illusions, but at the same time, this seems to be woven into the same fabric as consciousness. So what I just described is, would be uh, described more as neutral monism, because that, that from that perspective, it's saying that consciousness is very real. Material stuff is very real. They coexist in some way. So it's the, the monism says that they're really not two separate things, but they appear to be two separate things, like two sides of the same coin. So that would, that's a, a flavor of idealism. The esoteric traditions actually go farther than that and say that, yes, consciousness and the material world are related, but the material world emerges out of consciousness. In other words, one really is more fundamental. In that model, suddenly, it, it, to address your question of what's possible, anything you can imagine is possible. And in some respects, that's what the magical traditions say. It's like literally anything that you can imagine is possible. Things that you cannot imagine probably won't happen, which addresses the issue of skeptics today or someone who goes through 25 years of education. They get a narrow constraint of what they can imagine is possible. So if a physicist says that ESP is impossible and they really believe that, for them, it won't happen because they've now excluded it from the realm of possibilities. And yet, uh, if the physical world emerges out of awareness, we're talking now about a universal awareness, it's simply everywhere and it's not even, it's before space and time, that everywhere awareness is what traditionally is called God, it's called universal consciousness, source, a million names are for the same concept. Well, that source is somehow giving rise to or emerging from as the universe as we see it as, as humans. But our sense of awareness inside our head is made out of the same stuff. Like everything's made out of the same stuff, but our sense of internal experience is the universal consciousness. So in Hinduism, it's Atman equals Brahman. Every religion has the same concept, and all mystics keep saying this again and again. You are the universe. From an everyday perspective, that sounds crazy. What do you mean you are the universe? Well, the you is your awareness is the same as universal awareness. That means that each of us has, in effect, a very tiny piece of the same source that gave rise to the entire universe. So if you wish, you can make anything happen to a limited extent, probably not going to be able to create an entire universe, but you can manipulate your world. So law of attraction, affirmations, all of that stuff, which is now pretty popular, 
I think from a theoretical or a philosophical basis, there's reason to, to believe that that's, that's a real thing. It's not, not massive. It's not a hugely powerful thing, but it is real. You can push the world in small ways. More importantly, that if you take a purely scientific perspective and you want to know, well, is it really true that your awareness is, transcends space and time? And is it really true that your awareness can somehow shape reality around you? Those are experiments that can be done and have been done for about 150 years. And we know that it happens. It's small effects, but it's real. So one of the ways that I, I deal with this in, in my book, Real Magic, is not to go through all of these experiments again and describe how they work and so on. I do a summary of that, but I point people to my earlier books. Because in the earlier books, I do go in some detail and describe how the experiments are done, how we know that they're correct, how we know what the results are, and so on. I didn't want to repeat that. So instead, I, I give a summary, and then uh, I quote the president of the American Statistical Association, because statistics is the discipline of somewhere between science and mathematics that evaluates data and makes an assessment about the data. So. What did the president of the American Statistical Association say in 2016 for her presidential address? She, it was Jessica Utz who was the president at, at that time. So she gave an hour long speech about lots of different things in statistics. And then uh, I'm sure from the audience's point of view, out of the blue, she starts talking about one of the applications of statistics that she was involved in, which was analysis of the US government program on remote viewing precognition. And she says flat out that by the same standards that would be applied to any other area of science, that precognition and other psychic phenomena are real. Well, basically that's the end of the argument. You don't, if, if the president of the American Statistical Association is saying this to 6,000 statisticians because she has actually spent the time to look at the data, there's no argument to that. From an empirical perspective, these phenomena exist. And of course, I add other stuff too, but that's, I mean, that's like game over as far as that kind of, the, about the existential question. So this then uh, pretty much settles the notion about the existence of psychic phenomena. The link then to magic is, is twofold. One is that magic gives us a cosmology or a philosophy as to why it works. And if you look at what magic actually is in terms of the practices, one practice is divination, which means to perceive through space and time. That's been tested in the lab, we know it's true. The second is force of will, which is use of intention to push the world around. That's been tested in the lab, we know it's true. The third practice is theurgy, which is conjuring spirits or communicating with spirits to get, get them to do things on your behalf. There the, the evidence is less certain that there are spirits. The evidence is certain that mediums, at least, mediums are psychics who talk to dead people, or at least they claim to talk to dead people. We can confirm that what the mediums get as information is correct. And it's in double-blind conditions, so they're not getting it through cold reading and other techniques. So what mediums can get about departed loved ones, the information is correct. We don't know where that information comes from. 
Maybe it's telepathy. Maybe it's precognition. Maybe it's something. And maybe there are no deceased people that they're speaking to. That's their experience, but we, we have no independent way of checking if that's what's actually going on. The same goes for near-death experiences. People have all kinds of wild and even consistent experiences, but we don't have an independent way of testing that yet to find out, is the experience exactly what it appears to be? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So at least two of the practices of magic have been confirmed in the lab. Third practice in theurgy, we don't know quite yet. Uh, that's the link then between what we can say with confidence from a scientific perspective and these ancient traditions. So the other thing interesting about magic is if you go back maybe 500 or 1,000 years ago, nobody understood anything about anything. This is why in pre-scientific days we had stories. We had cosm cosmology stories, origin stories, stories about how things work. They usually involve spirits of this and that and whatever. We didn't know. Eventually somebody figured out that there are certain regularities natural regularities that didn't seem to require the intervention of gods, things like magnetism. And so you could use magnetism and somehow if you float a tiny magnet on a piece of water that it would always point in the same direction. So people can figure this out. Maybe spirits were doing it, but you didn't really need that idea anymore. By the same token, it was found that certain herbs would relieve a headache. Certain herbs would accelerate healing. Maybe it's because of some kind of spirit inside the material, but even that after a while wasn't thought to be necessary. You just eat this berry and your headache goes away. So that was called then transition from supernatural magical ideas to natural magic. Natural magic quickly led into alchemy, astrology, and herbalism, which are now known as chemistry, astronomy, and the pharmaceutical business. So all of science can be traced backwards in time into natural magic and then into supernatural magic. But when science developed, it left out something. It left out the role of consciousness because alchemy, astrology, and herbalism all were very deeply related to consciousness of the practitioner. So the reason I mention this is because what I'm proposing then is that eventually we will rediscover what the ancients knew which was a consciousness is way more important than we currently think. And it will come back into science. It'll be understood in different terms. Different words will be used to talk about it. And it, it will revolutionize what we currently think about the scientific worldview. So that could happen next Tuesday. Uh, it's more likely to happen about a century from next Tuesday because science moves slowly. And then there are gigantic consequences in terms of how civilization is going to work because our civilization pretty much is resting on a scientific worldview today. There are certainly religious people and religious countries where that's less true, but from a world economic perspective, we're pretty much sitting in the scientific worldview today. So as that worldview changes, the nature of civilization itself will change. That's my riff on that. I don't know how much of your questions I addressed, but that's... No, you covered them. Yeah, it's wonderful. So I, as you were talking, I was just writing down more questions. Um, I think the worldview point is, is so important. And if you find fundamentally, especially in the scientific community, you know, when I went to um, Egypt with uh, Nassim Haramid and the Resident Science Foundation, they talked about worldviews. And um, for me, coming from a more, let's say, 
martial arts, spiritual background or whatever. It was always in, but science didn't kind of match that at the time growing up. So it's nice to see that, that shift. Um, so I have a lot of questions and I guess I'll just throw a lot of things at and you can pick again. One but, at a time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot of talk now about either artificial intelligence, simulation theory. Uh, we talk a little bit about God and source in this, in the spiritual community or, or even what you're looking at ESP. We want to connect. We want to figure out, I want to know how can I remote view? What is possible for me? Um, and so I guess the question that you can kind of pick from is what tools have you discovered that we can develop this connection so it can become real for us? Because that's the thing that we know through our consciousness, what we experience and what of your research has kind of tied into or discoveries made in the, in the effects of artificial intelligence or simulation theory, or basically the big questions, what is this reality? What's going on here? What's the point? How do we have a, a life where we can influence a reality? And I think in spirituality, it's kind of twofold where you learn a perspective where you can go through life peacefully and it, with a state of peace and calm. And, the, and a lot of that's in the mind. And then the second part is influencing your reality in, in a positive manner so that you're taken care of, but you have a positive influence. All very good questions. So you can pick way what you too want. much. <laughs> That's why you can, you can pick you can pick the one that you that you want. That's why. All I'm right. Sure. So you're asking about methods first. What do you, what do you do? Well, the first thing about methods is to realize that people are different. Like big whoop. That's that's like basic psychology. Because people are different, uh, you have a very wide range of natural talent, just like you have in music and in sports. Some people have it, some people don't. If you are not talented in this domain, and I'm talking about ability to reach deep mind, uh, you're not going to have much magic happening because that's where it comes from. It comes from a very deep sense of, of not mind so much, but think of, of mind as a mental apparatus that allows you to do mathematics and talk and things like that, cognition. So that's part of it. But as you learn, especially through meditation and with some psychedelics, that you, you, you're creating the universe all the time. You're, you're, you're constructing what, what you see, what you think, and so on. Meditation allows you to drop lower than that and to start, start living in just awareness, only awareness. And you can go down as far as you can imagine. Some people are talented in that domain. So they'll take like a, a meditation class and two weeks later they're in samadhi or, or a magician would say they're in a state of gnosis. That's where you want to be to have very strong abilities in this sense. Samadhi, of course, is the Sanskrit term used mostly in yoga, but that's where the yogic powers come from. And Gnosis is exactly the same thing, but in a Western esoteric tradition, and that's where magic comes from. It doesn't happen at the surface level of the mind. It's happened to much deeper, normally thought of as unconscious levels of the mind, because that's where you connect that's where you begin to realize that your consciousness and universal consciousness are the same thing. So what methods can the average person use? Well, meditation is probably the safest and the most ancient method. It works for some people and others, it simply doesn't work so well. There are many methods of meditation. For me, I do the practice of Vipassana. In the modern day, we now call it mindfulness meditation. It's basically the same thing. Uh, for some people, it works really well. Other people would like a, a mantra-type meditation, 
or concentration type meditation or walking meditation. Lots of different methods are used or chanting or whatever. All of them are useful in basically pulling you out of the ordinary state of awareness. Your everyday state of awareness is not the place you want to do magic, not the place you want to be psychic. It's not there. So that automatically will exclude a large proportion of the population because you don't either have, don't have the time or the interest or the talent to be able to want to go to deeper levels of, of mind. There are some within religious communities who don't believe that there is a, an unconscious mind. I mean, it's just part, they have been taught that, no, there is no unconscious. Well, they're wrong. It's easy to demonstrate that they're wrong, but nevertheless, that's what they believe. So that becomes a limitation for them. In terms of the simulation hypothesis and AI and so on, my guess is that if we're working from a model where everything is emerging out of consciousness and consciousness comes before space and time, well, then that explains why psychic phenomena work and why magic works. But it also does something which is a little bit more unexpected. And it says that everything, including an artificial brain, has elements of consciousness in it because it's made out of consciousness. That the, the physicality which is used to make this material object is emerging out of consciousness in exactly the same way that an electronic circuit is ultimately emerging, or at least has atoms in it, and it has elementary particles, and it has electrons, and it has protons, and so on. It's made out of elementary stuff, just like everything else above it is too. So if we're made out of consciousness atoms, for want of a better term, we're made out of bits of consciousness, that means that everything has a certain degree of sentience to it. That would include an artificial brain. If the artificial brain is complex enough, if it starts to approach the complexity of the human brain, I would predict then that if the consciousness hypothesis is true, which I think it is, then that brain will become self-aware because it's made out of consciousness. It has all the kind of recursive circuitry that the human brain has, which will allow it to become aware of itself. In which case, the robots become sufficiently complex, they will wake up one day and start asking, well, who am I? And how did I get here? The same kind of questions that we would when the brain is working correctly. So if that is true, that the, the robots will become conscious, it is different than the, the, the usual uh, singularity hypothesis because the singularity hypothesis is saying that the reason that the robots become conscious is because they have simulated the brain so well that it's giving rise to consciousness. The, the activity of the brain is giving rise to consciousness, just as a neuroscientist would say, the brain is giving rise to consciousness. I'm saying, no, it will become conscious, but not because it's giving rise to anything, it's simply that it is able to accommodate the consciousness which is already there in a way which simulates the way that we do. So we are aware because our, the consciousness that we are part of can achieve self-awareness. It's not simply that you're aware, but it's the self-awareness that makes us human. Because otherwise you could have a thermostat, which, is, which would say, well, it's aware, kind of, it's responding to the environment, but it probably doesn't have self-awareness. It's not complex enough to do that. So this says that uh, the, the conscious robots may end up 
instantly being super psychic because they, depending on how we design them, they may not have this, they don't need the psychological filters that have been built into us by millions of years of evolution. So we are, we as organisms to survive, we have to pay a lot of attention to here and now. So the tiger next to us doesn't eat us. We need to pay very close attention to that. And you can then see how over a long period of time that our attention is shaped by evolution to be very narrow here now. And that's basically it. Uh, whereas the whole thing about being psychic is that you, you expand here and now to there and then. You, that, that's basically what happens with psychic perception, that it, you don't need to be focused here. You can spread it out. So if you want to see what's on Pluto a million years ago, that's just as easy as looking at what is in front of you from a psychic perspective, because that's what consciousness does. It's not located anywhere in space or time. So you can see anything anywhere, anytime. Uh, so the robots may have that ability. If they do have such perceptual ability, then they may also have what might be thought of as a, an active ability as well. They can, their force of will may be much, much more powerful than it is in the typical human, in which case they will be psychic levitating wizards. And so if we're afraid about the singularity because of the Terminator movie scenario where they decide that uh, we are bugs and we must be eliminated, what happens when the robots are not simply machines out to get us like autonomous drones, killer drones, but robots that could think us out of existence if they wanted to. So yet another reason to be afraid of the singularity. Fortunately, there are a lot of people now working on injecting uh, ethics and morality into AI and even love into AI. So that when, when at the point when the machines become aware, they will at least embody some aspects of compassion and uh, what we would, we would hope to see in the most enlightened humans. And then we would not be afraid of our uh, robot overlords, which in principle might be a way more powerful than we can even think of today. Oh my God. <laughs> what did you say? Psychic levitating <laughs> wizard robots. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, I have, I talk about that as one of the, <laughs> one of the consequences of all this in the, the last chapter in the book. Holy crap. Well, I want to be a psychic levitating wizard man. Well, that is possible too. It, you may have the talent to do it. I mean, it's, an, it's unusual to have that level of talent, but somebody has it and you, you clearly you're on the path to figure it out. So yeah, there are some real people like that. In fact, I spent a chapter in the book talking about real life Merlins. They're rare. They're maybe one in a million or even one in a hundred million people who are that level. But there are a number of well-documented cases in history where we're talking about hundreds to thousands of witnesses talking about humans levitating, humans calling down lightning bolts, big, big things. I, I talk about that in the book because this is after the chapter where I talk about the science of what, what we know from the laboratory studies. What we see in the laboratory is usually pretty weak, but that's because we almost never have the opportunity to talk to, what, to these one in a million people. They're, just, they're rare and they don't want to come to the laboratory. Occasionally, we find somebody who is an expert in clairvoyance, remote viewing. 
they're much more frequently found than people who can do macroscopic psychokinetic effects. So I, my guess is that maybe one in 10,000 people is, can reach the level of an expert for remote viewing uh, as compared to maybe one in a million or one in a hundred million for people who can do psychokinetic effects. So since they're more common, we've had people in the laboratory and we can get much better results for perceptual tasks than we can for psychokinetic tasks. So maybe you can do both. And when you get to the point where you can levitate, will you then call me so we can study it in the lab? A hundred percent. And if you figure out a way to, uh, what science, like do the process, I'll follow the process and I'll, and I'll give it a shot. You know, that's kind of, I like to dive in, try the crap out of it, see what I'm able to do. Okay. So you can find a recipe for what to do in the yoga sutras. All right. Because the, the third book, or is it the second book? The third book of the yoga sutras is all about the cities. The, the yogic powers that uh, arise as a result of dedicated meditation. The recipes are roughly 25 different kinds of powers that can be developed, one of which is levitation, another is invisibility, another is super strength, super speed, all the comic book things you've ever heard about, but this was written 2,000 years before comic books were invented. So the recipes basically follow this, the assumption again that at deep levels of awareness, what a, what a yogi would call samadhi, that you're not that different from the same source of the universe itself. So the, the recipes all follow the same general idea, that if you want to be able to levitate, you need to contemplate, uh, in samadhi, contemplate on the notion of weight and gravity. And if you can become weight or gravity, which, which happens at the mystical stage. There's no distinction between you and it anymore. If you can become it, well, then you can overcome, overcome it as well. You can be gravity, in which case, normally gravity is pointing in one direction, simply decide, well, it's either, it's not gonna affect me now, or I'm gonna point it in the other direction. By the same token, the, one of the first and most elementary cities is perception through space and time. That's the very first one that, that, that potentially mentions. And so the way you do it is the prescription is first you go to samadhi. And by the way, you have to be able to get to samadhi and sustain it for as long as you wish. I've been meditating for 40 years and I think I can count maybe four minutes of spontaneously being in samadhi, but I can't make it happen at will. So I clearly don't have that talent. But if you do have the talent, you go there, you, you hang out in samadhi for as long as you wish, then you direct a very small amount of intention toward the thing that you want to be. So in this case, uh, for perception through space and time, you would concentrate on the notion of causality or the, the apparent flow of time. You become it by putting all of your attention on it in a, in a samadhi state, and then you can realize that uh, causation is, is an appearance. It's not actually what's going on. That allows you to perceive past, present, and future all at the same time. Well, that's clairvoyance, basically, but at a very high and refined level and not that difficult to achieve. Oh, man. Okay. All right. <laughs> so many things I want to throw back. Okay, so we've got the autobiography of a yogi, which I sure you've read so yep. he he 
you know, does some pretty incredible things in the, in that book that mm-hmm. uh, life and teachings of the masters of the far East people are just, uh, they're disappearing, reappearing, healing, doing all these different things. Right. Um, so I would, and then uh, I was watching something, a guy with Greg Braden about this yogi that put his hand in a wall in a cave or something and, and pushed through the cave. So these things that have, that are seemingly unbelievable through your research as a scientist, PhD with all the accolades, you believe this is true. And then, well, I'll, I'll get, well, some of it maybe. I would say that, that the extreme level these really incredible things, we don't have the same level of confidence that we have for something we can test in the lab because the stories about invisibility and levitation and so on, they are still stories, right? They're anecdotes, sometimes by credible people. There are sometimes lots of witnesses. So it has some credibility, but it's very different than the kind of credibility we can get when we do something in the lab and other scientists can repeat it in the lab. So I would say I'm inclined to suspect that some of it is real. Some of the major stories are real, but not with the same level of confidence. Gotcha. Cool. I appreciate that, uh, Claire, the distinction. Um, so yeah, the, the possibility, because like you said before, um, if we don't give ourselves the possibility, it can never happen. And that's kind of one of the yeah. things that I'll teach pretty consistently. If you can't imagine doing it, you know, a life for yourself or whatever, how do we apply these things? How can we open up? our restraints that we're putting on ourselves or we got from cultural programming or from the way it is that's limiting. We're not even understanding it. And so I'm curious from, from your view, do you, let let me, let me respond to that before you go on. So how, how do you, uh, how do you get somebody to open their, their range of possibilities? Some people are just naturally open. It's a personality trait. That, like I have taken lots of personality tests and I have a trait, which is called openness, which is very high on the scale. I'm just open to all kinds of things. Maybe it's because I had a career in music and engineering and psychology and a bunch of other things. So I just have a wide variety of ways of seeing the world. Other people are much more narrow in terms of what they will accept as true. They're typically called skeptics. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with skepticism. It simply is a matter of doubt. But some people carry it to extremes, and they really do not accept certain things at all. For those people, the only thing that can cause them to uh, increase their imagination a little bit is a personal experience. That is the only thing. They will not accept any other form of evidence. And as I talk about in the book on magic, even one of those people who has a personal experience, they will forget it, or they will deny it afterwards, because it can completely shatter your belief system. Your belief system, we identify with our beliefs. So if something happens, which is to somebody, it's just mind boggling, it's uncomfortable. And so they will deny it later. They'll say it never happened, or it was a mistake or something like that. And I give examples in the book of where strong skeptics had some astonishing experience. And then a couple of years later, they say they just completely deny it. So uh, if a person is not particularly open, they have what I call an imagination deficiency syndrome. They, 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 they are limited in terms of what they can perceive. In general, creative artists, writers, musicians, anybody who's involved in a, in a creative um, either profession or hobby or whatever, they're usually way more open 
to these kinds of phenomena than somebody who uh, stereotype is someone who spends an enormous amount of attention on just one thing or just a few things and that's it. So how do you get somebody to pay attention to this? Uh, if, they're, if they have an inclination towards it, it's relatively easy. Like they read a book, they do experiments on themselves, they learn to meditate, whatever. Yeah, they, they can be opened up. Some percentage of people, maybe 20%, it's not going to happen. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's it. I believe in the, in the direct experience very much so. And that's why, you know, if there's processes and stuff like meditation, just try, try it and see what it's like and then know for yourself. Um, so I think that's really good feedback. What I'm curious about for others, by the way, the only thing that might work is a psychedelic, right? Yep. The psychedelics are, are described sometimes as breaking open the head. It shoves you into a new space. For, for some people, that could be the only way to do it as well. Because then, if they wanted to, they could repeat it. You see, the problem with a spontaneous major psychic thing is that it may not be repeated, so it's easier to deny. Whereas if you took LSD or took psilocybin or something, you could have a very profound experience that you can repeat, in which case you either go crazy because you're denying your own experience or you accept it. So people have done both. People go psychotic sometimes because they simply can't accept it or that they do accept it. Yep. Yeah, that's true right there too because uh, um, somebody – there's lots of amazing research being done now on psychedelics and I'm, I'm an advocate for responsible use. If you want to explore that, you know, with maybe not go too much, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, it changes the way you think in a way that you can't imagine. It takes you to a whole different state of consciousness and ideally it inspires you to open up doors of your own possibility. Right. And that's what it's, you know, people have limitations and I feel like culture, we, we try to impose those limitations and I think we should be looking at what is, what is possible for ourselves and encouraging others. And I think that psychedelics are a pretty good way to quickly and directly, you know, see a worldview and question yourself, question your own possibility and limitations. Um, one of the questions that I really wanted to ask before I uh, let you go, because this has been so good, um, two things. One of them is a kind of a deeper thing. And one of them is just general knowledge. And I'll get, so be basic with the first one. What beliefs or worldviews would you empower each individual with to make the most amount of positive change on the planet? And then the second one, and you can kind of pick and choose again, as you wish in this, in your research, you've looked at Eastern mysticism, religions, Western religions, mysticisms, and it's usually this connection with God, nature, source. We're in this reality now. We go on YouTube and you've got aliens and archons and demons and spirits and fifth dimension and ninth dimension and all this shit. Um, it's very fascinating. And I'm right in the middle of it and I'm curious, you know, and you're curious too. You're trying to measure this stuff however the heck you're doing that. So kudos and good, good luck. That sounds challenging. Um, what do you think this reality is and what's important to know about of, of all that stuff? Do you believe we're in an awakening? What's the connection with God? What is that to you? And that's kind of general. So I'll leave it with that. <laughs> Again, <laughs> I just gave you a cluster to kind of sort through. <laughs> um, yeah. What is reality uh, and how should we behave? I, I have mixed feelings about this that uh, one might think that if we believed 
that we live in a universe that is created from consciousness or for some source that we find difficult to imagine and that, that we are part of that, that at least it suggests that maybe some human-centric notions about compassion, uh, about altruism, about the golden rule, all of that, maybe that's also built into the fabric of the universe. From a magical perspective, it definitely is, because from a magical perspective, everything is interconnected. It's all emerging out of this one thing, this consciousness thing. So the reason why black magic is discouraged, even though it's also immensely seductive, is because you, you do something bad to somebody else, you're hurting yourself, either immediately or it will come back later. You can't avoid that. You can't, you can't manipulate the world without manipulating yourself because it's the same stuff. The reason, by the, by the way, that black magic is seductive is because, as Jean-Paul Sartre once said, the philosopher, uh, hell is other people, right? As social creatures, we, we have to rely on other people to get things done. And, uh, and if they don't do what you want them to do, well, that's hell. So hell is other people. And so we're are almost always inclined to try to influence another person to do something to our benefit. Well, that overrides their free will. That's black magic. Anything which overrides somebody else's free will is black magic and, and considered a no-no in virtually every magical tradition, although there are flavors of magicians who specialize in it because they don't care that maybe they're masochists or something and they don't care. So the reason why I've conflicted about uh, everyone suddenly becoming all spiritual and believing in consciousness and all the rest is because there have been societies in history and even today to some extent that are much more spiritual. But it seems almost impossible for humans to gain a sense of spirituality without immediately collapsing into a religion in the sense of an organized cosmology which, which paints a story about how we should understand the spiritual experience. Because of that, uh, even supposedly highly secular societies, highly spiritual societies, they all end up with the same nasty business. The power usually is the thing that corrupts the society. So just as one example, you can go to a place like India where lots of people are very interested in all kinds of spiritual things and they're at each other's throats all the time. They have caste systems. They have many reasons that are, that are not working too well for a company of over or a country of over a billion people. So, what does that mean now? If we have a world of eight billion people, and pretty soon, where we're all very spiritual, but we all have power issues too. And not only that, some people will be highly talented and will be able to, even within a spiritual umbrella, be much more powerful naturally, that they will immediately attract a cult, right? Somebody who's just even mildly telepathic can easily create a cult around themselves because they can portray what appears to be godlike powers. Most people don't have that, so they're going to follow this person. And there are probably tens of thousands of existing cults around the world that are led by people who have some minimum of talent, usually some minimum of psychic talent. We might think of them as charismatic, but a charisma, a charism in the Catholic faith is a psychic power. 
it's a special power. It's in the psychic, in, Catholic, in Catholicism, it's not thought of as psychic, it's thought of more as a divine gift. But essentially, it is a, uh, a yogi might think of it as a type of city, a certain power, which, in which you can radiate goodness, and that attracts people to you. Or you can radiate attraction, which will attract people to you, and so on. There are lots of powers like that, where they're somewhere between the Jedi mind trick, where you can cloud people's minds, but you can cloud it in, in ways that you wish. You can cloud it so that now you're the most attractive person in the world, or the most powerful, or whatever you want. You will draw people to you, and that is seductive. So until we can evolve out of what amounts to our humanity adolescence, where power becomes so important, uh, I'm not sure that a, a major change in our worldview would make us necessarily better people. What it will do is change technologies and make them way more powerful than what we currently have, which means that part of what I do then in studying psychic phenomena and magic is the same that somebody would be doing by studying nuclear energy. The phenomena itself is really interesting, but it has very important ethical considerations as well. Like some things you don't want to be made public because it would be too dangerous to be made public. We're not mature enough yet as a species. And if you unleash these kinds of ideas among a, as I say in the book, basically a group of babies, that's not going to be good for anybody. So I'm, I'm well aware of this. We, uh, among my colleagues, we talk about this occasionally on what, what do we make publicly available and what don't we do. Uh, at this point, I don't think we actually know enough to know what the unintended consequences will be for revealing this, but I think we don't have to worry about it too much because the vast majority of people don't have the, the passion and talent to be able to use these phenomena very well. Some do, and some can learn it. But most people are more concerned about the, the, the uh, World Cup soccer and the latest NASCAR race and so on, which is fine. So they're not gonna be involved in doing magic. They're not gonna be able to harm reality. So what is reality? Well, my guess is, and of course, who knows what reality can really be, but my guess is that it has something to do very importantly with the nature of consciousness. So awareness just seems to be part of the fabric of everything. Uh, consciousness can embody in many different ways. So it probably, if in fact, from consciousness emerges the physical world, well, we're physical creatures. We are emerged from consciousness over a long period of time, from our perspective, maybe from consciousness's expect, uh, perspective, it was a flash. It's like, oh, I think I'll dream up humans, bang. 100 million years later, there you got it. From our perspective, from its perspective, it's instant. So, so I think that, that's, that's my current working model for uh, what I think reality is. Uh, I then, and, and I was drawn to this notion, like I, as I started to say early on, I have no religious background. Uh, I was taught not as an atheist, but as a religious, which is quite different. A religious means that the notion of religion is, is just never a topic. It never came up. We never discussed it. It didn't exist. It's like it was an unnecessary idea. Uh, 
uh, an atheist than as someone who is uh, who is anti-believing in theism, believing in gods. And that wasn't the case. I'm completely agnostic about it. I, I think it would be interesting if there were godlike things out there. I don't mind if that's true or not. Uh, but by not having a religious background, then I've been drawn basically by the research that I've been doing, by reading the literature, to accept at least what most mystics have said about the nature of reality. Some religions then codify the mystical experience in, in various ways, largely shaped by culture. And I see those as interesting stories. They're cosmologies. I don't, I don't really buy into any religious doctrine. Uh, but the, the, the mystical state, it's a repetitive experience that people have talked about forever. That is probably as close to the truth as we can get. And that truth says, ultimately, we are the universe as strange as that sounds, but I think that's the way it is, that we, we are an embodiment of the ultimate reality. That's what gives us so much responsibility too, right? We're a little piece of the universe. Well, look out and into what the stars are doing. They're bashing it in, into each other. They're blowing up. They're doing all kinds of violent things. Maybe that's why we behave the way we do too. We're acting out on a microscopic scale what's happening in the macroscopic. I don't know. Incredible. <laughs> Such a fascinating, wonderful answer. I really appreciate your time and coming on and all the research that you've done and, and sharing. I wish I could have you all day. Um, is there anything that you want to, that was wonderful. You could leave it at that. Um, just tell people where they could find you, but anything that you want to leave the listeners with and just thank you so much for coming on. Well, so you can go get uh, Real Magic. It's a great cover, by the way. Yeah, they did a good job. It's uh, the artist at Penguin Random House did that. So yeah, you go to uh, deanradin.org or realmagicbook.com. You get a lot of more information about the, the book itself. Uh, you can get it in paperback, in ebook form, and in uh, the audible uh, audiobook form. It's actually selling about the same number of paperback books as the audiobook. In the audiobook, I had the the opportunity to choose who the voice artist would be. And I chose the, the guy who reads most of the Dan Brown books. And I, I chose him because this is the kind of, of artist who could read anything, including a menu or the phone book, and you would just be pleased to listen because the voice is that good. Uh, some people have asked me, well, why didn't I read it? And, and so my response to that is, you got to be kidding. You, you really you want to listen to this voice for 12 hours because that's how long the book is? Uh, so I decided, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, I want somebody who is a professional reader and knows how to do it right. So there you have it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your work and everything you're up to. Keep, keep me up to date with your research. And uh, the second that I can levitate or do something, I'll be coming down your way, way to uh, show you what's possible. But uh, thanks for coming on and thanks everybody for listening. Bye. Live long and prosper. All right, guys. I hope that you enjoyed that absolutely incredible episode with Dean Raiden. He is just such a brilliant human doing extraordinary work so check out his book and all his works and his interviews he's just he's just amazing if you like the episode please share it leave a review in itunes um 
share it with your friends uh support on patreon please go just take that action and go to matt or patreon.com forward slash matt belair and chip a buck in the bucket because it really does have uh, help most important thing you can do is do an act of kindness if not three acts of kindness is a mathematical formula so hold the door open give a dollar away pay it forward give a compliment write a letter to an old friend pick up a piece of trash let somebody in in traffic um give somebody a compliment just three acts of kindness and that's the best way you can support the podcast so please 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 do that and if you want to go above and beyond and leave a review in iTunes, share this episode with your friends, um, take the action and go into Patreon and chip in a buck in the bucket. You know, when you do that action, you really are supporting the show and getting the word out there. So thank you so much. Um, check out Zen Athlete. If you have not read that book yet, it's extraordinary. You can go to Zen Life, Zen Music, Zen Business. It's the principles of high achieving peak performance. But most importantly, it's like the Zen master martial arts attitude where you are en route to mastery with the, with the principles it takes to become a master but doing it from a fulfilled point of view so if you know any coaches or athletes or entrepreneurs who are into achieving their highest potential send them that book i'm happy to send out any ebooks to any coaches any influencers anybody working with kids um, or if you can't even afford it that's totally fine with me i'll, I'll gift it to you i do not care um, my goal is to get that information out there and so if you know any sports organizations coaches teachers things like that please uh, get in touch at matt at zenathlete.com if you guys are interested in coaching and you want to level up, I'm doing 90-minute breakthrough sessions so I can help you um, get pretty clear on, you know, what your life purpose could be. You know, we're not going to define it, but we're going to we're going to get a clear picture. Um, you can get to a uh, life uh, vision. We can create those. We can overcome blocks. We can do all kinds of things. So I have studied a lot of different processes over a long time. So if you want to do a 90 minute breakthrough session, um, you just got to get really clear on what you want out of it. And we can be laser focused in getting you a ton of value as well as uh, more in-depth coaching. And this would be people who are serious about leveling up about understanding this stuff deeper, about um, living a life of fulfillment, of joy. Um, and you could be at any level of the game, a, a total beginner or CEO master or spiritual master. And there's definitely going to be some things in there for you to level up. Um, any athlete, any CEO, any entrepreneur, and any regular Joe who is looking just to design their life and is very serious about putting in the work and doing what it takes. So check that out at Matt, um, mattbelair.com forward slash coaching. Make sure you sign up for the email list. Uh, there's a free lucid dreaming as well if you go forward slash lucid dreaming. Um, and I think that's it. So check out lonebearsarts.com and check out his vibrational jewelry and all that kind of stuff. Just let him know Matt sent you and he'll give you 5% off. But it's all custom made, handmade native jewelry that actually is reactive technology. Uh, creates a magnetic field to promote coherence. Um and all that kind of fun jazz that goes with reactive jewelry that I won't get into now because I've said enough. So thank you very much. That's it. I got to go. I'm, I'm speaking fast because I got some stuff to do, but uh, I love you. I appreciate you. I hope you're having an amazing day. And before we sign off, let's just do three deep breaths together and come to peace and coherence. So taking in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath, just setting the intention to come to peace and coherence and let that breath out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day. Taking another deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath. And just let it out slowly, just feeling peaceful and content. One more deep breath in through your nose. Hold the breath and just let it out slowly, making the decision to go the rest of your day with peace, with coherence, with contentment, with joy, with seeing the best side of things, with 
gratitude and appreciation for what you have, for where you are, being content with what you have, where you are and who you're with and who you are. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. All of my love, all of my appreciation, all of my encouragement to you to be the person that you want to be. Remembering that you are enough, you are worthy, you're amazing, you're outstanding, you're having the human experience and your job is to experience it. So be easy on yourself, be kind to yourself, be compassionate to yourself and uh, sending you all of my love and support. So thanks so much for listening and I will see you in the next episode.